You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I pretend that I'm not from here. I'm a woman from Idaho on vacation with friends. I'm a newlywed from Indiana, an unremarkable guest at the Village Hotel, exploring Breckenridge, Colorado, waiting for a valet to bring her rented car around. A drop of water falls on my head. I look up at the green awning and move so that I'm fully covered. A black Escalade blasting music enters the roundabout. The car is huge, and I expect someone huge to go with it. But out come three young boys, the driver short, passengers tall, and the valet, also a young boy, wordlessly takes the driver's keys, hands him a ticket, and nods his head. My son, Cully, who used to work here as a valet just three months ago, told me that he hated to park cars for people his age, and I can see why. Growing up, I'd feel the same thing, an embarrassment to work in front of friends and peers. The worst job I had was fitting ski boots for girls who came here on spring break from places like Florida and Texas. They were always saying, it hurts, and I would say that it's supposed to, making the boots tighter. Cowie Hart Hemmings is the author of the short story collection House of Thieves. Her first novel was The Descendants. Her new novel is The Possibilities. Thank you for joining me, Cowie. You're welcome. It's good to be back in San Francisco. Cowie, I love Sarah St. John. She's such a great character. Talk about discovering her voice, which is so acerbic, but also so intricately knowing about herself and those around her. It took me a while. I originally wrote the entire novel. Um, it was a different. It had a different plot, but in the voice of Lyle. And Lyle wasn't her grandfather. I mean, her father as he is now. She, he was her husband. Yeah, that sounds weird. But So I wrote it all in his point of view, and it just didn't work. And then I changed it to her point of view. And it's funny because the feedback I got just when it was switched to hers is that she was too unlikable. Even though when it was a male point of view, it was perfectly fine, that voice. And so... I took that advice, and yet I didn't change it that much because that was just her personality that I wanted her to have. That's how I felt she would react to grief and pain and loss. It would be a bit crass. It would be a bit unlikable and too bad. And so (laughs) I just sort of embraced that and um, thought it just suited her unlikable. Mm. I'm ready to propose to her. (laughs) (laughs) I thought she was just a a really a lot of fun. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this book, and this is, I guess, kind of writing 101, but Mm. as I I noticed this, I thought, it's written in the present tense. So the character doesn't know what's going to happen Mm -hmm. any more than we do. And that creates this kind of really nice sense of tension. I And I think that's, well, I don't want to say it's always how I will write, but I seem to really enjoy, first of all, first-person narratives and also 
present tense and just putting you directly inside of a story. And it, it just seems to get rid of any kind of illusion of fiction or, or being in a book. And it just makes you settle in. When you're writing, do you know where your story is going? You wrote this all as Lyle. When you wrote it all as Lyle, mm-hmm. did you know where the story was going? I thought I did, and I canceled that out. I'm not the most organized writer in terms of outlining and knowing exactly where I'm going to go. I The only way I really write is by writing, <laughs> sitting down and seeing what I'm going to have my character say and do. And it's worked for me, but Honestly, I'm, I envy other writers who have more of a map, who know what, because they save time <laughs> and they save a lot of drafting. And, um, but at the same time, I really enjoy surprising myself and not knowing everything. Well, I think, too, when you don't know, when you don't draft, mm-hmm. there's an element of surprise that does that help keep you writing? I mean, interested in finding out what's going to happen to mm-hmm. these people. It keeps me writing. It keeps me interested in my own work. Um, I think that's the times where I really like being a writer, when I'm able to surprise myself by um, something a character does or says, or I read something over and it makes me laugh. And that's when the joy comes in. Now, at the very beginning in this book, we meet Sarah St. John. Mm -hmm. She's working as a kind of a newscaster, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, Mm -hmm. in a ski town in Colorado. And her son has been dead three months from an avalanche. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things that we experienced from the very beginning of this book is there's a character who is a big part of the book, but he's not there. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if for you that's like, you sketch the entire, if you know the entire iceberg, or if mm-hmm. all you have to do is just show the tip. I mean, in when we see the movie Titanic, we don't mm-hmm. have to see the whole iceberg to, to experience the awesomeness. No, and, you know, I'm not a suspense writer or anything, but I, I feel that there's a lot to learn from that genre in terms of, you know, as you said, just seeing the tip and not seeing the entire iceberg and letting trusting the reader to bring his or her, her own sensibilities to the page. When you say you're not a suspense writer, but mm-hmm. I think this book is very suspenseful. It really kept me involved. I wanted to find out what was going to happen mm-hmm. in every move. And this brings me to your sense of plotting, which I think is very interesting. Your book consists of emotional plots, mm-hmm. and it turns on the decisions we make. And we make decisions in a very interesting way. On one hand, we like to say, when I made this decision, it's rational. I weighed A, I mm-hmm. weighed B. A was better than B. I chose A. But that's not the way it is. And decisions are often emotional because the tree is sometimes is so big. There's so many possibilities, mm-hmm. as in the name of the book. Uh-huh. Uh, you use your emotions to just slash that forest down and make mm-hmm. that decision in an instant. And I think that's one of the things that makes this book so entertaining. Oh, good. It's I, I feel like that's the only way you get to know characters, too, sometimes, is by the decisions they make and by these rash judgments and... Um, just their their instincts and so it's 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 fun to write that that way 
when you were creating Sarah St. John, talk about just the the character who looms in the background of this of mm. this book, the the town of, of Breckenridge, yeah. Colorado. Yeah. Breckenridge, I love Breckenridge and it's it's one of those towns, when you think of ski resorts, I, I, I think people think of Vail or Aspen or some a ritzy place. And Breckenridge really has maintained its roots in this rustic, kind of rugged, idealistic town um, where, you know, in the old days, people would come to hide out, criminals would come to duck out, and wealthy people would come to sort of shed their wealth and start from scratch with ne- without people knowing their backstories. So I was really drawn to that. Um, I lived in Breckenridge. Well, I would go to Breckenridge every weekend when I was in college. And then I moved there after college, and it's where I met my husband. It's where we had our first jobs. It's where I decided I wanted to be a writer and eventually decided that I wanted to set a novel here. I wrote about Hawaii for this reason too. It's just I wanted to see a place like this, a place that I love, that lots of people love, uh, represented in in fiction. I've never seen it before, so I wanted to give it a shot. One of the things about towns like Breckenridge and Mm -hmm. Hawaii as well is they're kind of, they have two almost contradictory uh, personalities. One is it's a very small town. Mm -hmm. Everybody who lives there all year knows everybody else, but during tourist season, as you say, the, the population goes from 4,600 4, to 35,000. Right. So you have this kind of big town mentality, mm-hmm. too. So talk about that, the tension between those two. And you play with that a lot in mm-hmm. this book. Well, you know, you, it's a small town, so you know everybody, and yet everything is renewed each year. There's a different cast of characters each year. You go from 35,000 people to no one. So it's constantly changing and constantly, well, it's changing. And also everyone who passes through leaves some sort of impression or mark. And so things change by this these different groups of people. And there's always that group, too, who considers themselves the locals because they lived there for a year and a half, <laughs> perhaps. Um but they come and go, and I think people come to these places to sort of figure out who they are, and then they leave, and the locals are left with their trash, sort of, <laughs> left to clean things up. But um, it's those people who stay and outlast the transients that are really interesting to me, and these are the people who have just scrape by and sort of put together these random careers such as Sarah's with her promotional television show just because they love this place. Now, Sarah is such an interesting character. She's a single mother by choice. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's interesting, one of the the tension aspects of this book is getting to know her backstory. You will... We'll be in the present, and then we'll have her memory kind of mm-hmm. echo into the past. So talk about pacing those time slips and using the action in the present mm-hmm. to reveal the character in the past. Well, I'm not sure if I did any. Oh, no, I did do a few flashbacks. I rarely do flashbacks. I don't like to do them. If anything, I'll allow myself a few paragraphs inserted at, at the right places. 
just because I like to keep things immediate. But you find out her backstory, which is that she wanted to be this sort of famous broadcaster, like a Diane Sawyer type. And instead, because she got pregnant when she was very young, that whole dream was derailed. And so now she is a television host, one of those shows that gets pumped into hotel rooms that it's really more of advertisements for for local shows than it is news. Because her son has died in Mm -hmm. an avalanche, and we know this kind of coming in, she's... The book begins when she's making her comeback, coming back to yes. her job. Yes. Not going well, is no. it? No. She comes back to her job. She stutters. She has no belief in what she's doing. She makes lewd remarks, I, th- I think. She makes a lot of mistakes, and she's just sort of overcome with anger. And I had fun writing that. One of the, the core aspects of this book is the perception that we all have that death and any association with mm-hmm. death, it's embarrassing. Mm-hmm. It is embarrassing. And having to talk to people is uncomfortable. And it's and you trump people in a way with your story, with your death story, when you don't want to trump them. You just want to be able to talk about the weather But instead, it's uncomfortable for both parties. I had a friend whose mom just died, and I ran into her in a parking lot. And what do you say? I just said, I'm so sorry about your mom. It's embarrassing. She's embarrassed. You know, then she makes excuses. Oh, I know. It, it, It was hard. She had a good life. And you're both just standing there in the parking lot just wishing you could go. Well, uh, as you say, too, I mean, well, there, uh, I, I think of Atalos Feva who said, you know, life is the disease that admits but one cure. And we should know death is so elemental. We should know, know. how to deal with it. And it's just simple. I know. Why isn't it just like, OK, yeah, we got that. Yeah, we should master it. We shouldn't have it down, like done, down. And, and, but your characters have don't have it down. No. Anything but. So talk about creating these kind of really complicated exchanges because you're just a master of the kind of dialogue that people really hear. And when I walk around reading one of your books and then walking around, it's like we're all of a sudden immersed in one of your books. I, I feel that way sometimes too when I walk around. It's something that just comes sort of naturally to me just based on what I hear around me and the conversations people have. And I I, I do eavesdrop a lot and <laughs> I do observe a lot. And sometimes dialogue is just charged with a certain absurdity. And so I, I just try to keep it, keep it real. The exchanges these characters have when I'm writing them, I, I really do make myself think, would they say that? Would they say this? Would this person say that? And sometimes I have to reel it in. It becomes too clever or too cute. or So I try to mix that up, that um, to be realistic. Let them have their personalities, but to be true. Now, Sarah is, she's not easy on anybody around her. Mm-hmm. 
And so I'd like you to talk about creating her kind of complicated voice who has, we realize, has tried to forget who the father of her child is. Right. Everything is, I mean, grief has consumed her and she has trouble seeing that there are other people out there who are just as sad and who her son has deeply touched. Um, and this includes her own father. It includes the father of Cully. And it includes a, another girl who we'll meet in in the novel. But she at least knows what she is doing and how she is treating other people. And she knows it's not right. It's sort of like, you know, being an alcoholic or something. You know you're not supposed to drink it, but you have to. You would need it. And so that's why she acts the way she does. And she admits that I do not know how to grieve properly. She's doing it all wrong. But that just is because there's no way. There's no right way. There's no right way. Right. And, and, you know, one of the things I think you do as a writer that's really clever and really fun is that you'll have Sarah say something and the quotes end, but then she keeps talking Mm -hmm. past the end of the quote to Mm -hmm. the reader. And I think that's a really interesting way to give us, you know, the the public side she presents, the private side of who she is, and that kind of complicated reflection. And that's one of the things I think that makes this book so powerful is a vision of how people really behave and how emotions really work. Mm-hmm. And don't you do that yourself, too? You you talk to someone and it's 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 in your quotes and then in your head you're thinking something entirely different. So, well, that's one of the things too. This book is uh, it's all about how I would think one of the things that, that runs through this book for me at least was that how self contradictory we are. Mm-hmm. Where absolutely we we value highly consistency in thought, consistency in morals, consistency in our approach, but we are anything but consistent. We're completely all over the map. We will believe two completely opposite things at once, oh, say one thing and do the other. I know. And and you know what um tell something that tells me that every day or reminds me of that every day is having kids because <laughs> I'm always so contradictory with them, you know, when they yell, "Stop yelling!" So what kind of example is that? But that that was a you know different different sort of thing altogether. But well, I of course uh, this novel presents mm-hmm. us with two generations: mm-hmm. uh, father and daughter, uh, daughter and son who's not there, uh, a husband, non-husband, and, and non-wife. <laughs> this is a really interesting kind of complicated and jangled vision of family too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and yet I think it's not so unusual. I feel like that's what families are these days, these these weird little clubs and these stepbrothers and sisters and just everyone just forced to be in this room together. Well, talk about how, you know, how much of this do you pull out of your own life and how much of it uh, do you uh, make up on the page, how much of it happens before, how much of it happens when you're actually typing at the keyboard? Mm -hmm. I think the finding the location always comes first for me. It's kind of like movies, location scouting first. So I always 
start with that and and then I move on even just I think just the sentences just to see what that first sentence would be and I build and build upon that I don't necessarily know who the characters are when I first start but I I learn who they are by what they say and do and choose well when you talk about the first mm-hmm. version of this novel as being told from Lyle's point of view yeah. and he's the husband <laughs> this is yeah. this is a really interesting approach and I'm really glad you changed it and because I really like Sarah and I think that had you made her quote what somebody might have thought of as more likable mm-hmm. she would have been rang much less true yeah and you know I I think I well I did start this before my first novel so this was that version when Lyle was the narrator was ages ago. I mean, more than seven years ago. And so I burned that copy and um, started fresh with her voice. I think after having written a male character in my first book, I just I wanted to give a female character a shot. And it was ironically a little harder for me. But... I'm glad I chose glad I chose her to tell the story. Why why was it harder? I don't know. I well, men are so easy. Um <laughs> <laughs> Remember who you're talking yeah. to here? <laughs> well, especially that that character that I created I could relate to when I wrote him. I wasn't married. I knew nothing about having kids. And so that was sort of his his mentality, he just didn't, he was overwhelmed by by these things in his life. And I guess I, if I put myself in his shoes, I, I understood that. And for some reason, because my voice and tone is sort of funny and acerbic, I always associate, associate that with masculinity. Um, so I had to get over that, and I did. I, I think so, too. And, I, and one of the things that uh, I like is, you know, the way the past kind of bubbles up because there's one point where Sarah uh, sees herself on an old tape uh, of her show right. before before the death. And, and mm. there's this really great feeling scene where she feels compassion for her older self because that older self doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. Right. It's this surreal moment when she's seeing her past almost and and thinking, you know, oh, my gosh, you don't know what's coming. But um, I I also like that moment just because while she sort of envies that old self who was so innocent and loved her work and um, was just happy, she wouldn't trade places with her, with the old self, which is Hard to admit, I would think, in her position. Well, uh, too. Now, she's got a great uh, friend Yes. in this book. So talk about creating Suzanne, who is not—she's not exactly likable. This oh, my is. gosh. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's wonderful and horrid at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, and she— um, was such a blast to write, and she reminds me um, of a few of my mom's friends who 
I mean, some of the dialogue can just be plucked right out of their conversations. And they're just can be so insensitive and that rich woman bossiness about them. And yet they're the most generous people, most funny people I know. And so that's where she came about. Well, I think this is a it's an interesting almost inversion of Sarah in terms of the complexity of the characters Mm -hmm. because uh, Sarah is hypersensitive but just doesn't care. Mm -hmm. And and Suzanne is completely insensitive but kind of pretends to care. So it's, I think, you have have a great way of showing us uh, just how prickly human beings are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I also just... A woman's friendships with one another. Um, I I really enjoyed writing that and how two different personalities just just can know each other to the core and and get along despite not having similar friends or interests or anything and they just have this connection. Yeah, you describe it as almost like a in a sense like a romance, which I thought mm-hmm. was an interesting, really interesting approach, and it felt. Uh, this book just feels like shot through with with bolts of the truth, of true emotion, the way people really feel and oh, act. Good. When you were kind of, once you had decided to reinvent this book, did it just, and you got Sarah's voice down, mm-hmm. did it just roll off the tip of your pen or did you have, did you have to go back and stitch it together? I did a lot of stitching. I did stitching, cutting, tossing out. But yes, once I found her voice and once I decided, see, there was one version where it was Sarah and Kit and it was alternating points of view. And um, once I canceled out Kit's voice or her perspective, then then it rolled. Then it rolled. Well, and this gets us to... Kali and the things he leaves behind mm-hmm. because this is an interesting perception you say you make that when we die we leave a bunch of stuff behind mm-hmm. and I have to confess that I've come to the age where I look at my Tupperware cabinet <laughs> I think I don't want my kids to have to find old Trader Joe's jars that I've saved oh, to I put know. dog food in I know <laughs> all the things that's why you're supposed to wear good underwear all the time, right? (laughs) (laughs) But what I hadn't considered was Mm -hmm. that this extends to people, too, that there are people in our lives that, you know, somebody may or we assume that everybody that we know knows everybody else that we know. But that's absent in the way that we know them. Yeah. That's absolutely not the case. Right. You know your children in a certain way, I would say. I know my children in a certain way that their friends don't understand and their friends see that see will see things that I will never know. There's going to be this whole side of your child or even your husband and his work life or wife and her work life that you just don't see. You only see the iceberg. This also takes place in in Colorado and mm-hmm. and there's a uh, a, a thriving uh, hemp culture there. Yeah. So <laughs> even more thriving now. More thriving now. Uh, so talk about uh, creating that. You are you get a, a points for prescience there. 
Yeah, right? So, yeah, I wrote I wrote this knowing that it was going to be legalized and but I I wanted to write it in a certain the time before it actually happened. But um, you know, I was just there and right next to the ice cream shop, I'm walking down the street with a daughter. My daughter is the Breckenridge Cannabis Club. <laughs> it's just surreal to me and you know, people just drop in for little little treats. Now, uh one of the things we have too is uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, this character Kit, who's an, a really fascinating mm. uh, character. She's um, we we meet her and we know her one way, and then we get to know her another way. And mm. I think that this is uh, I, I think you know a theme of the book is the different ways we perceive people based on how much we know about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get to know her as a stranger, um, shoveling snow off the deck. And then she comes back later and sort of confesses uh, something that, and everything changes. Because not only do we see her in a different way, but she brings Kali to light in a different way. And we get, the characters get to know him more through each other. And that's, I think, another aspect of this novel that's really interesting is that there are so many moments in this novel where we're really immersed in Sarah's perception and just really enjoying it. She's just uh, she just gives nobody any slack, and she's really fun to be with. Mm-hmm. Um, but then something will happen, and, and we'll see that how just learning something or knowing something can, in an instant change everything in our lives and that's one of one of the things that happens a lot in this novel is mm-hmm. things just turn on a dime based on how we get to know somebody right and that's what happens sometimes in life and it it seems to have i mean i really upped up amped up the intensity in the novel it takes place you know just over maybe four days and um i think it's just in fiction, I love to do that. I love to create a time frame and a ticking time clock, and people have to adjust and adapt immediately to news, um, and and act and and process and make decisions. Well, that I think uh, goes back to what you were saying earlier about uh, suspense writing, where I think that this novel really does partake of that kind of. Uh, uh, time bomb thriller Mm -hmm. except for the time bombs are all emotional and uh, also achingly realistic Mm -hmm. that's good i like that because i mean my whole one of my biggest goals is just to have a reader turn the page and that's all i could hope for and i'm not really writing about um existential problems um i'm writing about something so real and that in order to make it feel real, yeah, I do want you sort of sitting on the edge of your seat, even though, um, you know, Jack Ryan's not going to swoop in or anything. No, but I think what what, uh, makes this novel, I think, more compelling than Jack Ryan Mm -hmm. is is that uh, I've known people who have been in these situations. And, you know, for example, you know, you have different spins on motherhood here. Mm -hmm. Sarah finds herself uh, before the novel even starts. She had found herself in a situation 
where she had decided to become a single mother. Mm -hmm. And what one of the the second we learn at the beginning of the novel, there's a ticking time bomb as to how did that come to pass? And that's a fascinating story. On how she decided to become a single yeah, mother. Yeah, and the way you mm -hmm. lay that out. So talk about, I mean, the plotting of this novel is so intricate. It seems like it's very finely stitched together. Do you, is yeah. this something you just comes off the cuff? No, I it, it definitely, I, I always draft and I go back. And that's when I really hem and um, sort of mold it all together. And yeah, in order to create that tension and the, the pace, um, it definitely takes time to go back and sort of knit together and cut and add and layer. Well, talk about creating the father, Billy, Collie's mm -hmm. father, Billy, who before I even meet him, I don't like him. Billy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, but you do. You make you turn that around, and I think that's uh, admirable on your part. Well, he's he's he met Sarah, you know, when they were both living in Breckenridge, and it was just a summer fling, or a winter, <laughs> a winter fling, and so that's why they separated because you know she she went back to college, he went back to his hometown in Durango, and and yet everything was amicable at the end. Um, their distance was okay. And I, I don't know necessarily where I got him from. My husband loves motorcycles. Maybe that's it. <laughs> but Billy, in the end, you know, he's, he's kind and he remarried. And so that's why they weren't together. But they really find that they are leaning on each other and that they're, they're intimate in a way that that just surpasses it, their history. Um, yeah, they they're they depend on one another, and they're almost like best friends when it comes when it comes down to it. And, and another uh, character who I absolutely love is her father, Lyle. Yeah, he was fun to write. <laughs> I imagine this show <laughs> at the very beginning. He has a really great rant, and he's a uh, HSC addict. He, he's rude. Mm -hmm. You can see, and it's nice too because you can see where Sarah's kind of attitude comes yeah. from from yeah. him. And I was wondering how much of his attitude gave birth to her in this previous draft. And I mean, you know, it seems like this is an interesting. Uh... I don't know his his attitude. Just seems to me is more about making people laugh than hers. He's really trying to charm people with his sense of humor and he's just a funny guy and he's a kind man and he doesn't know what to do with himself after after retiring and that just is so familiar to me just with my parents and my father's friends you know the women are just fine and it's the men who really don't know what to do with their time and and it's always the men, too, who, who say, this will be my last record or this will be my last, you know, who declare their retirement. And then they go back. Then they're, I've decided to come back. You never hear women doing that, declaring they're, they're, they're going to be, they're going to stop writing. And then they come back. They make a comeback. So I think it's something very difficult um, for men to because it's so much a part of their identity their jobs and so I really enjoyed writing 
this character who whose identity was so wrapped up in in this resort town that he really doesn't know what to do with his time. You know, you do something really well that I think is a lot of people aspire to but doesn't get done well is you capture the way that cell phones have changed the way we talk to mm-hmm. one another. And there's a couple scenes where two people are talking on cell phones in the car at the same time. Mm-hmm. And two other people are ta- having a conversation in the car and these kind of overlapping conversations. And you managed to do this without, like, I guess, making the people who are on the cell phone sound like complete buttheads. <laughs> well, when I sit down, my goal is to not make people sound like buttheads. So I'm glad I did that. <laughs> now, uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of uh, humor in this book, and and part of it has to do with you know the way the media treats death, and you know our mediated uh, mm-hmm. culture. Yeah. So talk about the, just uh, why death, which is you know the ultimate event in our lives, is uh, a, a a good joke. I don't Good punchline. Yeah, it's it's ha ha. You know, it just I think because of the mannerisms uh, and behaviors that it brings out, and the rituals and traditions. My grandmother died, and the, I mean, this isn't funny, but it's funny. Um, there she lived a wonderful life till ninety eight, but the hearse came out. And to pick her up, God, this sounds awful. And the two drivers who had tattoos and um, like earrings in their noses, you know, stopped in front and and looked down. And me and my mom and my aunts were in the in the driveway, just sort of like, what what are we supposed to do? We realized they were they were waiting for us to say maybe last words. And here we were in our nightgowns. And looking at these two tattooed, like, high school students driving this hearse. And we all just started laughing. And it, it's those kind of things that that surround death that just make it just so absurd and r- ridiculous and impossible. And, and, yet, and yet nice. It feels so good to laugh. You know, and I think that's something else about this book. For all the... Rude, crude, and sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of mean things that fly back and forth between all the characters. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a kind of a sweetness that underlies this all. I hope uh, so. That it's an, uh, I think it's, that's because you can only say those kind of things when you authentically have feelings. Mm -hmm. And, And whether they're good or bad, having a feeling is important. Yeah. And I think. These people are so close that they're you're allowed you have the luxury of misbehaving and feeling the bad things and saying the wrong things when you're with people you're so close to and that you love. And underlying all of this is are just characters who want to smile again and who want to be kind again and and just have hope. You know, when when somebody dies, uh, and we <clears throat> start to find out uh, about their life, it's 
we actually um, create them as a character in our lives. And, oh, yeah. and we all of a sudden, the, what happens is, is that they become a story. And so I'd like you to talk about how the stories of those who aren't here anymore inform the stories that we who remain mm-hmm. tell ourselves about ourselves. Yeah, you, you create these little legacies and these little uh, narratives. And um, it's easier in the retelling and it's easier in your own head when there's a simple answer um, and when there's a simple story. You know, he was a man who loved such and such. He was a 22-year-old boy who loved to snowboard. And that's it. That's the story that sort of marches ahead of you. But that's never it. And um, sometimes these simple stories get interrupted. And that this is what happens with with her son. Um, that his story gets derailed. And it's upsetting to her. And it's it's gut-wrenching to her and yet at the same time or in the end it it's added these detours and um layers and just it's added more depth to him than she ever knew he had we get to yes you you the if they're because somebody who's dead is no longer there Mm -hmm. it's like two different characters are merged into one and, and they become this incredibly complicated person, one who we knew and one who we get to know through stories that were that are told to us. Yeah, and part of the sadness comes from um, not knowing the person you thought you did and wanting another chance. That's right. Well, that, that's an interesting mm-hmm. perception, one of many that you find in this book, and it's so wise. Do you? There are so many like. If you were to be a person who underlines parts in a book, mm-hmm. you could probably underline most of every page in this book. Oh, that's great. Well, talk about creating mm-hmm. those sentences. Do they, do you like um, say, do you have a, a, a separate page with, I will use these great sentences somewhere no. in this book? <laughs> no, I, um, that, that's just what comes out and, but only on the page. Um, and I think this is why I'm a writer because I want to. I like to communicate. I like to be wise and funny, but I'm not in real life. I'm. I'm. I don't feel articulate and wise. But when I'm writing, I do. And so when I, I, I think it just comes out when I'm sitting down. I don't have a pay. I do have a deleted scenes file um, that where I, if I have to edit things, but I love the sentence, then I'll cut and paste it into that file and use it, save it for the future. (laughs) Oh, that's one thing I find that just when I'm doing writing that I, that the computer makes really easy is really free because you can just crank something out and say, and it seems pretty good, but you know, it's wrong. You can just cut and paste it and put Mm -hmm. it over here and then start again, and you have that fresh thing. But you have all you have this little cushion over yeah. there. I say, oh, this is perfect, even though it's completely irrelevant, and ultimately I'm going to think it's trash. Right. Then you get over here, and you can do the real work. I know, and then you can pick from it like it's a snack drawer. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, a snack drawer. Uh, a lot of parents and children in this book, and we see them... You know the relations at 
you know, every stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so talk about the, you know, the kind of echoing between Lyle and Sarah, Sarah and Cully, and uh, then we have uh, Suzanne and Morgan. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things you say that I thought was very interesting, that when a child is ashamed, they're mean to their parents. Yeah, it's sort of that first thing you do, right? Um, why is it? I don't know. I, th- I think this book is so much about parenthood and it's the one one of the most complicated things to write about and to live and um my I think it's I draw definitely on my family when it comes to what I write and I'm so close to my children my husband my mom lives with us and so I have this relationship with her where we're so close Everything is witnessed. Everything is seen. And um, so I guess that's why I write about families that are like this, all bunched up. I forget what the question was, though. (laughs) That's a a good answer. (laughs) You know, uh, obviously, here's a novel about a a woman three months into Mm -hmm. the grieving process and uh, and gets thrown some some curveballs and... At, at that point. So I'd like you to talk about maybe some of your own experiences with grief. We all know the what are supposed to be the five stages, mm-hmm. but, you know, that's probably about as, you know, applicable to real life as, you know, stop signs. Mm-hmm. In other words, I don't stop at stop signs or not, right? Yeah. Not particularly. Yeah, well, I do. <laughs> um my experience with grief, I didn't really use, I mean, my experiences are small. And so what I did was just exaggerate that in here, just as I didn't don't know what it's like to have a wife who's in a coma, or I don't know what it's like to have a teenage daughter. I don't know what it's like to have a 22 year old son. And so I didn't draw upon, I don't know, grief or my experiences to write this. I feel like I sort of sit down and get into character and I imagine what it would be like and everyone I think can pull from those reserves and just by imagining the worst scenario you you act you can access grief that way so you become Sarah St. John when you sit down at the typewriter yeah I guess I do uh, method acting yeah. with, a, with with your fingers. Yeah, I know. I even have a ski jacket, and no, I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> when you talked about it, uh, the uh, wife in a coma, all I could think mm-hmm. about, uh, and that, and I think that that sensibility carries through both of these books is uh, the Smiths. With, <laughs> are you familiar with? Oh them? yeah, girlfriend, girlfriend in a coma. Girlfriend in a coma. Yeah, it's serious, I know. It's very, very serious. serious. <laughs> 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 but I think that that's that kind of like really schizophrenic approach is really valuable when you're approaching like really serious things because mm-hmm. you can't wrap your brain around it. You you know, on one no. hand, it's it's terrible and you don't even want to think about it. You wish you could go yeah. back to another time. And yeah. on the other hand, all you can do is just laugh. So capture right because you're acting. I 
I feel it's more similar to acting because if this had happened to me, I would never write about it ever and I wouldn't know how to interpret it and I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to make an experience like that artistic in any way. So I, I that's why I don't write from personal experience, I guess. Oh, well, so we're going to hope that you have a very quiet life yeah. <laughs> sitting in yeah. the, the library <laughs> at your typewriter and, <gasps> and so you can imagine even wilder things. Right. Uh, do you Have you started a new book yet? Do you know what you're, where you're going to go next? I do. Um, I am writing a young adult novel. Wow. Yes. Right. So fun. And I'm almost done. Wow. Is it a dystopian uh, future? No, it's not. Okay, it's thank you. It's realistic. <laughs> oh, what if I said yes? You'd have to pretend that you're interested. No, I I just uh, I have my own problems with the, uh, the girly uh, adventures. I know. So, no, this is a realistic, realistic fiction. Um, I set, in, set in Hawaii. Okay. Well, yeah. that, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it has been fun. I've been speaking with Cowie Hart-Hemmings. Her new novel is The Possibilities. Thank you for joining me, Cowie. Thank you for having me. I loved it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.